No, uh, we might good. have to redo the Hold intro. All right, let's pray. <laughs> what if I was just like, just, just take my, take my hand. Be I like, thought you were going to be like, all right, we got this. We got this, but daddy God. Ew. Just- <laughs> Ew. No, I hate it when people say that should be illegal. Because here's the thing. In other cultures, daddy God probably oh, makes go. sense. In American culture. We haven't even started. Daddy <laughs> so. is for one person and one person only. And that is Pedro Pascal. I'm Savannah, and I'm an atheist, kind of. Hi, I'm Josh, and I'm a Christian, kind of. And this is the Holy Hell Podcast, where we look at Christianity from a spiritual and historical perspective to try and understand how the hell we got to the Christianity we have today. And we'll probably raise a little hell along the way. Let's dive in. Uh, Before we get into our topic today, because it's a little bit of a heavy one, um, a little bit of housekeeping, a little bit of chit-chat. Do you have anything that you'd like to catch everyone up on? Yeah. Uh, okay, so episode one was great. Ah, uh, yes. But Josh does have, um, unfortunately, this is breaking news. This just in. We do have a bit of a YouTube apology video coming your way because you've made a grave mistake. I mean, let's just call it what it is. Our fans decided to cancel me because of right. what I said about Taylor Swift. However... Okay, here's the thing, though. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you can't believe in a God because I go on this rant about two things. Yeah. How incredible the 1975 and Matty Healy is. Right. And then go on this whole other rant on how Taylor Swift is a desecration to art. And then what He took happens, it back. We reconciled. It's okay. We, we did. I, I, I will put out a public apology later. But- then what happened this week? It's hearsay. There's not, isn't, is, wasn't there also another guy that she was supposedly dating? It doesn't matter. Apparently Maddie Healy and Taylor Swift are dating. No, and I, I don't, don't think understand. So. That is literally the most prophetic universal, what's the word? Karma that there ever has been in anything in the world. Interesting that you would describe it as a Christian divine act and also oh karma. God. I'm loving the mix, the mixology. You know, I'm just a spiritual religion. cocktail of We many just things. love to pick and choose. Look, I'm all for them. I'm all for it. Uh, so listen, here's the thing. And we'll wrap this up very quickly. I am not a Swifty, but I do appreciate her art. I think she's a fantastic artist and businesswoman. We did say that Swifties could, it's a highly underutilized cult that I think if the government should get involved, they'd be able to find a really great system for making great change. <laughs> yeah, I went back and watched that part of the episode. You actually make a very compelling case All on I'm why saying. Swifties should be a cult, an actual cult. 100%. Because they could change legislation. The The way that they changed and lowered the price of eggs, I'm sorry. I don't believe Wait, in God, but I do believe in the spiritual power of the Swifty cult. What are you talking about? Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay. At the Grammys, Oscars, whatever it was, the host reached out to Taylor Swift and was like, in the audience, was like, hey, you've got a great fan base. Can you get them to lower the price of eggs? And she was like, ha ha, yeah, I'll get right on it. Next day, egg prices went down. Sorry. What? <laughs> what? Is that a coincidence? No, she's like Jesus. She, Listen. You said it, not me. And I I'm not even kind of have to now. <laughs> okay, moving on. All right, moving right along, because neither uh, one of us is neither neither one of us is. That's what I just said. Neither, neither one, one of us, us is. Hey, let's uh, let's talk about how incredible 
our little following is yes. after that one episode. Okay. Um, first and foremost, thank you so much for following and yeah. listening to our podcast, even though it is a million hours long. And we got second, we got so much great feedback from people saying yes. that they liked it, that they they appreciated the nerding out that we do and like um that we're not hyper spiritual. Like it's not a it's not a sermon. Not that that's bad. It's just not what they were looking for in this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we really delivered and you guys really came through with giving really great critiques, ways that you want to see improvement, things that you want to see more of. I think that our audience is really engaged. You guys are awesome. And we found a really nice balance of we're not doing a sermon because there are a lot of people out there that are doing that way better. And then we're really good at having discussions and just turned out great. That was the most Savannah definition of our fan base ever, which is, I mean, incredible. (laughs) What did I say? Just, you gave a very analytical, factual approach. Like you guys gave us the feedback here and the criticism here. You gave us compliments here, comments here. I will say the thing that I love from our fan base is the, um, like the spiritual openness Mm -hmm. that they all have. Cause a lot of our folks, um, are still deeply rooted in some sort of spirituality. Some have completely left their faith systems some are currently deconstructing it mm-hmm. and they're like, we very much welcome the hater comments. Yes. Um, but we're also open to extreme, uh, sometimes hard and brutal dialogue. Yep. But so many people, uh, are just spiritually curious about yes. some of the things that we discuss. And I love that. And I think that's where true, what I would argue is Jesus driven spirituality. I think that's where it comes from is just being open. And I, so I love that. So we love you guys. It's amazing. That's a much more beautiful, welcoming way to describe it. I described our audience as avatars and you described them as people. And that is why you do what you do. You call them intelligent. I I called them communicative. uh, Sure. I was going to say like big, warm hearts. Yeah. 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 I'm just really, really thankful. And that reminds me, I want to do a little bit of a disclaimer. I think the one area where we could have been a little bit more clear is this, I am an atheist, you are a Christian, and the purpose of this podcast is not Josh and I trying to convince each other of why our perspective is right. We are not in any way interested in that. I'm not interested in becoming a Christian. He is not interested in becoming an atheist. We are here to share different perspectives of of why we believe the the things that we do or don't and using our backgrounds and our expertises and our areas where we thrive to hold a conversation that includes anyone that might fall into either of those categories, just so that we can better understand each other and how to love the rest of the world. And hopefully you can as well. I think there was a little bit of confusion. We saw a couple of comments that said, you know, things like Savannah's perspective of why she doesn't believe in the devil doesn't make sense to me. Well, it doesn't have to make sense to you, just like why you believe in God doesn't need to make sense to me. And that's your own personal journey. What we're here to do is not defend our ways of thinking, Mm -hmm. but simply share them. And if something you say doesn't make sense to me or something I say doesn't make sense to you, we can talk about it. But knowing at the end of the day, we'll always think slightly differently on Mm -hmm. these things. And that's the goal, to understand why. How can I better love you and other Christians and vice versa and do life together? So absolutely, that's the goal. If that wasn't clear before, this isn't a debate. Right. Although yeah. maybe it should be at some point just to like really. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. Get my blazer out. <laughs> I'm sure it will be in, in some capacity. We'll hit something where we disagree. But at, at the same time, um, I would love our 
relationship and friendship to be almost like a standard for people who have different totally belief systems. Because at the end of the day, like we love each other and we are friends. Yes. Um, like you said, like I'm not interested in becoming an atheist. You're not interested in becoming a Christian. The other side of the coin is I'm not wanting to turn you into a Christian and right. you're not wanting to turn me into an atheist. Um, and I think that's a beautiful handshake that we have. Mm -hmm. There's many things that we will be linear on in regards to inclusion and justice and maybe openness, but how we arrive there, sometimes it's two different paths. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Very well said. It's almost like you're a pastor for a living or something. It's crazy. <laughs> um, okay. Before we get into our topic, we're going to just take a moment because our topic today is violence and we're really going to, we're going to divide this into two sections. We're going to be looking at violence in the Bible. What the hell we do with that? Cause there's a lot of it. And then we're going to transition and look at how the Bible's violence has been misinterpreted to justify violence in Eurocentric cultures to oppress people. And that's going to lead us into a discussion around gun violence in America specifically. And one thing I want to say up front is that we both acknowledge that gun violence is not solely a Christian issue and right. not everyone who goes into a place and, you know, uses a gun to cause violence is Christian. We know that. We know that that is not true, that every person who uses guns as violence in, in you know, any situation, that doesn't mean that it's inherently they're a Christian. We absolutely acknowledge that. But what we are saying and what we're going to be talking about is that America specifically has had a history of and deep rooted foundations in violence as a coping mechanism when dealing with minorities and mm -hmm. others, right? It's a, uh, the xenophobia, if you will. And America has a, a really bad habit of using violence to, I don't want to say, how do you say this? Uh, to Using violence to oppress and take control over minority groups. Mm -hmm. White Americans specifically have a history of that. And that violence as a way of oppressing people has Christian roots. Christianity is deeply entangled with violence and justification. Mm -hmm. You look at Manifest Destiny, all of that. So... We just want to say that yeah. up front. We know that everyone who uses a gun isn't a Christian. We know that everyone who uses guns to enact violence on others is not a Christian. Mm -hmm. But the idea of violence as a way to deal with people that are other than you is a very uniquely American mm -hmm. and Christian idea um, that we're going to talk about. So yeah. just a little disclaimer. Anything else you'd want to add to that? Yeah. At the same time, too, we both acknowledge that we are talking about marginalized minority groups. Um, and this is coming from two, two white, white people. people. And so I guess, and I, I don't want to speak for you, but particularly for me, I, I can't think of a more privileged identity that there is in America. And so as we do our best to advocate for, uh, minority culture and, uh, and marginalized cultures, there's probably gonna be something that you and I say that's built out of blindness. Um, we have blinders up just because of how privileged you and I are. Very and so, well said. um, I think in that capacity, we want to learn. So this is where I love our fan base. You have no problem telling us where our blinders are up and that's yes. beautiful and important and needed. Um, and I think all we ask for in return is that we were absolutely will receive all that feedback. 
um, and give us a little grace as we kind of walk through all that as well. That's very well said. It's almost like I'm a pastor. <laughs> that did you make a great point. We're gonna we are gonna say things that we we're leaving things out and just know that it is not intentional, but we want to yeah, learn. So absolutely. please let us yeah. know. You don't even have to do it in a kind way. You can just let yeah. let us know. And maybe just one more disclaimer. I'm sure we'll yeah. put some text at the front too. You can um, cut to him for a second because I have to I told my husband I would text him when I'm here and I didn't. So you can just <laughs> tell him I said hi and I, I will, love I him and I miss him. Here we go. Um, yeah, just one other disclaimer. Um, Savannah did say it earlier. We are specifically, we're talking about violence and the history and origin of violence, but this is going to go into a conversation built around gun violence. And, uh, we just want to make that explicitly clear that, um, if you're watching this on YouTube, um, maybe check those chapter notes that are on the video. And if you want to, uh, we'll make it very clear. I'll make it very clear in that YouTube video when we are talking about particular gun violence, we were just talking about out of maybe, I think we have like a thousand plus listeners currently right now. Um, it would be no surprise if 10% of you have had some sort of personal history with gun violence. Absolutely. And so if this is a triggering aspect for you, either have a friend listen to it for you before or do everything you need to do to set up yourself to not have to go back into that story. Uh, Very well yeah. Said. Yes. All right. Okay, so as we jump in, there are a couple of things. I'm going to be referring to my notes more than I, for those that have watched me teach before, you know, normally I have notes in front of me, but I really try and stay off of them and look at people. Uh, I'm going to be referring to them a lot because I've got a lot of references and a lot of quotes that I don't want to mess up. And there's just a lot to cover. So I'm going to be looking down a little bit more than maybe some of you are used to in other videos of mine, but it's just so that I don't miss anything and that I give the facts, the dignity and accuracy that they deserve. But I want to start us off by saying maybe a couple of things that we can all agree on (laughs) just to, just to level the playing field a bit. First and foremost, all humans are violent. All of us, varying degrees, but I think we can all agree we are all violent to some extent at some point. Mm-hmm. We've all, you know, hit the wall when we were mad, right? We punched the air, or if you're a kid, right, you've like hit your sibling. We we all have that violent tendency. It's part of our survival. It's in us. And I think we can all agree on that. Yeah. Number two, it's a natural desire in all of us. There is that violent nature in all of us. That is something that I think we can all agree on. And again, to varying degrees, we all have a natural desire sometimes to be violent. Mm-hmm. Um, number three, the Bible is violent. That's it on that one. And then number four, the Bible should not always be taken literally. And now some of you listening might be saying, up, 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 up. No, I love the Bible. It should always be taken literally. I raise you. The eye for an eye, or I have to remove the plank in my eye before I call out a fleck of wood and and another, right? That passage, we don't interpret that literally, that you have a two by four in your eye, right? We know that that's a metaphor. Or parables, Jesus speaking in parables. We know that those are metaphors or stories that he's using to tell a story. So, Those are just some examples of where even the most literalist interpreters can agree Mm -hmm. the Bible is not always interpreted literally. So just those are all going to come up later on. I just think it's important to note that humanity is violent. We all have the tendency and the desire, and that's going to come up later on when we talk about the issue of violence in America and the evangelical Christian approach to viewing 
gun violence as right. a heart issue um, and why that's a bit problematic. But just a teaser. I don't know. Is there anything else you would add to that list? No, I, I'm really, really, really excited for this one. Yeah. Um, I think for me as well, because like pastors, especially for those of you who are advocating for guns and the American flag and the Bible to be all in tandem, like I'm coming after you on this one, like be ready because there needs to be a very honest and brutal and truthful conversation about this. And so I'm excited for this. It's going to be a hard conversation. Mm -hmm. We're going to walk through it with as much beauty as we can. But at the end of the day, um, yeah. Yeah. Let's just do it. Let's go into it. Okay. So first and foremost, I want to look at, we're going to look at uh, how violence was used in the Bible, why biblical authors maybe were so violent, right? How it was used, what were the authors doing with that? And then we'll look at how biblical violence influenced our current violence, our current interpretations of violence and actions in modern day. So first and foremost, let's look at ways that violence is used in the Bible. One of the main ways that we see violence used, especially in the Old Testament, is rhetoric. And that just means exaggerated language. When you say something that's super exaggerated to make a point, that's rhetoric. And uh, English majors are like, yeah, duh, we already know that. But some of us don't. That term was new to me um, when I was studying this. So rhetoric is just intense imagery that you use to make a point. And I, I have a couple of examples here. First and foremost... Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy and First um, and Second Kings are some of the most... <laughs> Deuteronomy is, some of, is one of the most awkward books when it comes to violence because it's very unclear. And then First and Second Kings, I think, um, and First and Second... First and Second Kings and First and Second... What's the other one that's after that? Samuel. There's a couple of others. The one If it has a one and a two, they're also pretty violent. So just those are some of the most violent books in the Bible. But Deuteronomy 7 says... All the Canaanites are to be destroyed. And this is God telling the Israelites, all the Canaanites are to be destroyed. And then it says all the Canaanites, they're destroyed. And then the next verse says, you're not allowed to marry a Canaanite. Well, that's really contradictory because if you destroyed all of them, then marrying them would not be a concern, right? It says, although the Canaanites were destroyed, and then also you shouldn't marry any of those Canaanites. It's like, well, obviously we just killed them all. So that's a little bit contradictory, but that might be confusing to us. But what that author is saying isn't that all of the Canaanites were killed. It's, it's rhetoric to mean that they won the battle against the Canaanites. Right. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. oh yeah. Basically how in sports we say like, oh, that team destroyed the other team. Right. Just means they won. That's likely what is happening here. Now there are other ways you can interpret that. You can interpret it literally if you want. You can go bananas. But it's likely that this is rhetoric being used in Deuteronomy, especially if you see passages, if you're reading the Old Testament and you come across contradictions when it comes to battles like that, it says, hey, all the Canaanites were destroyed. Also, don't marry the Canaanites. You think, well, that doesn't make any sense. Look at what, how that violence is being used. The author is using violence and we destroyed all the Canaanites simply as an exaggerated way to say that the Israelites won the battle. That's what they're being told. And then, so we have rhetoric, that's exaggerated language, and then hyperbole. So this is another example. This is in Joshua. And Joshua, like Deuteronomy, is a historical narrative. But Joshua is a war journal. 
So think it's kind of like it's historical narrative, but it's following almost like diary entries in right. battle, which is a lot of people don't know that Joshua is very violent, but it's because it's a war journal and it's telling these kind of vignettes of what's happening in battle. And Joshua 1040 states that all the Canaanites were completely destroyed. And then in Joshua 13, three chapters later, it says the Canaanites who were still in the land were blah, blah, blah. And you're like, wait a minute, didn't we just kill all of them? And so that, again, is another example where you might say, this is a little confusing. It says the Canaanites were completely destroyed by the Israelites. And then not three chapters later, the Canaanites are up and walking about the land. They're actually working with and for the Israelites. So it's contradicting each other. But what's actually happening is the author in Joshua is using that word, that phrase, totally destroy, the same way that we might say it's raining cats and dogs. It just mm. means it's raining really hard. It's not literal. And so when you're reading the Old Testament and there's a lot of violence, the first thing I want you to do when you come across those violent passages is say, is this rhetoric or hyperbole or metaphor? Right? Is that what's being used here? Because this passage is saying that this this the people of Israel went and killed an entire nation you're like, oh my God, that's terrible. When really what the author might be saying is that the Israelites won a battle, but he's just, the author is being super dramatic saying they slayed everyone in the land. And what it really just means is that they beat the Canaanites and the Canaanites surrendered. And so take note of that. And then lastly, sometimes violence is literal. Sometimes it is literal. When Stephen is stoned, Right. When in Leviticus, when it says, you know, uh, someone is supposed to be killed, they're supposed to be stoned if they commit adultery or Stephen is killed or Jesus is crucified. Right. Those are supposed to be literal pieces of violence. Those are literal events that we are supposed to interpret as literal, not metaphor. Stephen wasn't metaphorically stoned. Jesus wasn't metaphorically crucified. It's a literal interpretation. That does not give us permission to stone and crucify people. And if you've been following me online for a while, you know that my favorite thing to say is just because it's in the Bible does not mean that it's ideal or that it's to be imitated. This is a great example. Sometimes violence is rhetoric. Sometimes it's hyperbole. Sometimes it's metaphor. And sometimes it's literal. But violence is never something to be imitated or aspire to in the Mm -hmm. Bible for many reasons, one of which being um, it's not 30 AD anymore and we don't stone people for messing up, right? We have new ways of living. All of that to say, violence in the Bible has many different perspectives and many different uses. And a Mm. lot of times violence is a literary tool to tell a story. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this so far? I just threw a lot at you. No. How does that hit you as as a Christian who reads the Bible regularly? Yeah. I think the first thing that hits me is the Old Testament and parts of the New Testament, particularly the Old Testament, shows us ways of how a first century world, a 30, yeah, how you would find a peace. And the peace came mm. through the sword. Almost every single story throughout, um, I mean, you go through the from Genesis, which I'm sure we're going to hit, especially yep. with Babylon's uh, war at, uh, yeah, Sorry, I'm already, my brain is already firing on so many cylinders. This is so great. Um, But at the same time, um, when you go a little bit further into the message of Jesus, Mm -hmm. into a message of what the kingdom was, peace through nonviolence, 
when you get to that particular, that moment, a big part of why I would consider people calling the kingdom, the upside down culture, the upside down way or the upside down kingdom is through finding peace through actual love and making amends with your neighbor without shaking your fists at, at them. Mm. Mm-hmm. And yet we still have people in 2023 advocating for peace through literal physical violence. Now at the same time, disclaimer, there's a difference between creating violence and defense. And so this is not you and I, again, I don't want to speak for you, but this is not me saying that we should not have a military. We should not have defenses. This is not us bashing a veteran that goes to war to make sure that we can. This isn't a political statement. This isn't a political statement. This is literally just, at least again, I don't want to speak for you, but like, this is me saying like, if your first action is to cause harm towards someone that is such an antiquated and lazy and generic viewpoint of how to live your best life. Right. If your first approach to whatever you do, because the Bible says so is to cause violence and harm against someone, then you've missed a huge cornerstone of what Jesus would preach in the new Testament. Yep. That's very, yeah. Sorry. I'm already getting a little heated, but we'll, we'll just very I'll well down. said. And I'll I, down. I think So the other part that I want to touch on is where we could get a little crunchy because you raise a lot of great points and this will be a very easy thing for me to talk about as someone who is not a Christian and does not see the Bible as a life-giving divine or sacred text, but simply a a historical text. So this, this is admittedly a very easy conversation for me to have, but it might be a little bit challenging for you, but I'm very eager to hear your response because I yeah. know you'll be fine. So the story of the Israelites, to me, even as a Christian, and I'm sure you have also felt this way, the story of the Israelites is incredibly ironic because it's the story that tells of this, this people group and they're, you know, God says, love, love the foreigner, show compassion to the slaves, the widow, the poor. And yet, in the same breath says to slaughter an entire nation, dash mm. babies against rocks and um, trigger warning violence, but you know, slash open the stomachs of pregnant women right. and pillage villages and set people on fire and sell people. Um, you know, just ironic to see all of these themes kind of come up again in American history, but I digress. So it's this, it's this ironic story of this people group that God says, welcome the foreigner, love the, love the, the women and the poor and the widow and the children. And then also, if you're not an Israelite and you're not one of us, you deserve to die and we are going to take your land and it's justified by God. That to me is the exact definition of xenophobia Mm. and the Israelites and the God saying you are justified in killing this group of people. Now, so first you have that thought of, Oh my God, God loves these Israelites. He, he loves them. The Israelites are the apple of his eye or her eye or their eye. And I say he to not be triggering, but God loves the Israelites and says, love the neighbor, love the poor, love the widow. And also you are totally justified. And I'm actually calling you to kill this, these innocent mm-hmm. people pillage and take their land themes that we then see 
in Euro European history. So that's awkward, but I want to offer you some reprieve. So if you're like, uh, okay, but this, I'm is, not, this is really, I'm actually not. Okay. Though. Okay. Good. I don't even know. Do I mean, you, you can speak for me. Yeah. Do I want your reprieve or do you want me just to go off of that? Well, I want to say, I want to offer this counter, I mean, not this counter, but this additional thing just to, yeah. for anyone listening that is like, oh my God, Savannah, like yelling into their headphones being like, this is not, okay, so let me just take a breath. Th that, that sits in itself, right? You think, oh my God, this is really, uh, uh, what's the word, um, hy hypocritical for the Israelites to, they're supposedly love each other and then also God calls them to kill all of these people. Okay, what I want you to know is that, again, I am not Christian, so I can say this, and it doesn't harm me in any way. The authors of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, right, when they're writing of these war, no these war novels, basically, these war historical documents, had one singular job. And that was to paint Yahweh as the best God above other gods. The authors of these books were very aware that there were other gods, maybe even believed in them. They were making the case that Yahweh was better than all of those other gods. Yeah. And so when the authors are speaking about the Israelites, they are painting them as the end-all, be-all, best people in the world. And it leads their literature to be highly favorable towards the Israelites. So if there was a battle between the Israelites and the Canaanites and the Canaanites lost, instead of just saying that, the author might say, God called the Israelites to kill and pillage this village and they were victorious in their battle. They might say all of that, but really it was just a battle in which the Israelites won. But the authors had a job to do, and that was to mm -hmm. paint Yahweh as the best God in the world. They're just PR agents for yeah. Yahweh. And I read a great article by this a theologian named um, John Collins. He wrote a great article and he, he raises the question, how might a Buddhist interpret this book, yeah. the book of the Old Testament specifically? And some of you listening might be like, well, the Bible's not for Buddhists. To which I would say, how do you expect to convert anyone when your book says, yeah, if you don't believe what I believe, I actually get to pillage your land and kill you, right? So there's how, how does this sit with you yeah. right now? Um, oh, I have, yeah. So everything that you just mentioned seven to eight years ago was me saying to the, all of these things to myself in a mirror going, how the hell do you still believe in this thing right, and why? Right. So this was me going to other people, uh, other theologians and mentors of mine and sometimes getting very, again, generic and antiquated literal definitions yeah. around things. I think for me, like when I see the story of the Old Testament, um, I see a story of people who continually lose their identity and where they come from, mm -hmm. because I think that actually plays a big role into this. So if we were to backtrack all the way, let's go uh, all the way back from from before Solomon creates a, this massive military economical empire, you go a little bit before then and you have Moses, this military war leader, keep going back a little bit and you get back to the Genesis story, particularly when and why the Genesis creation story is written down. Before we even get into that, though, we have to understand where Israel was, where mm -hmm. these Hebrew exiles were. 
when that Genesis creation story was written or hypothetically when it was written, we assume that they were slaves under the Babylonian empire. Right. Now during this time, the Babylonian creation story was built out of war. It was built out of violence. The whole idea was you exist to take over lands, to go into other lands that aren't your own, to pillage those villages, to take them over. That's why you exist to take over other lands. Does it, and then are Sound you saying familiar? we then see that influence into the Israelites' own pieces of literature that well, they then create? Exactly, because yeah. when you look at the the scriptures from the perspective of this was written by a slave to other slaves, it right. opens up so many other viewpoints. So you eventually see them write down the creation story. This is their first act of resistance. This is us yes. saying, no, we exist for love and creativity and inclusion. This whole thing is built out of joy and love and peace. They didn't pick up the sword first. They picked up a pen and said, no, this is why we exist. So you go a little bit further into the story mm, okay. of the Israelites. You get to this guy named Solomon. Yep. Builds a massive economical empire. And I've always, this is in first, either first or second Kings. And I've found, like, I find it so funny that people think sarcasm doesn't exist in the Bible because I read one particular story about Solomon. It's when the queen of all, of all people, a woman comes and visits him. Mm -hmm. Of course, queen of Sheba, the queen of Sheba comes Mm -hmm. and visits him. And what does Solomon do? Solomon spends days showing off his guns, his tanks, his missiles, his F-16s. And the Queen of we, Sheba. We realize that those don't actually exist in the Bible. Right, it, I mean, this, but the, the weaponry. Yeah, yeah, the chariots, the yeah, tank, the yeah. tank of his day, right? Yeah. And uh, the Queen of Sheba looks at him, and he and she goes, "Wow, your God must be so impressed." And what happens after that is yeah. the main character of the story is not the Queen of Sheba, it's not Solomon. It's the storyteller who's writing the story. Because then he then starts talking about all the lands that Solomon takes over Mm -hmm. to make bases for his military in. And so what the Queen of Sheba was Mm. essentially doing in that moment was going, you lost your way. This was exactly what you ran from. Is this not what you tried to escape Egypt for? Is this not why you left Assyria? Is this not why you left Babylon? And that story continues over and over we again. We see them continue. Israelites exactly. are continually called out saying, you have lost your way. You've gone and, after the wrong thing. And yeah. so that's a bigger mm-hmm. version of like when we look at Solomon's military empire, it is the storytellers and the, the, the creators of the scriptures constantly reminding us how easy it is for us to lose our way in creating a life built out of love and justice and peace without a sword. I mean, you even get into, uh, you get, get into the minor prophets and like the minor prophets were like the rage against the machine guys in the, yep. in the scriptures to Jeremiah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Specifically when we start talking about the story of swords into, into plowshares, because what's so fascinating about that is that this prophet Elijah is Right? Or is it, it's Elijah. Elijah, yeah. I don't know why I want to say Jeremiah. Oh, you just said Jeremiah. That's right. I'm sorry. That's right. I confused it's, you. It's, yeah. it's yeah, your yeah, fault. Yeah. It's fine. Um, but Elijah says, take swords, the, the guns of the first century right, world, right. and turn them into plowshares. And I found this fascinating, is that Elijah doesn't say, and hold on with me here, okay? Just hold on. He doesn't say dismantle the system that created swords. He says, what would happen if you took all of the energy 
that we have as a nation, as a people, as a community, take all the energy we put into making more and more guns and bullets and tanks and chariots and swords yeah. and take all that energy and move it into something that actually gives life a plow. Yeah. And so you have something like Smith and Weston, the biggest gun manufacturer in, I think it's in the world, not only in America, but in, in the entire earth. Right. And so that then makes me as someone who reads the scriptures and, and tries to apply that. Cause I see so much of that still, like we have not evolved as a species very much since the first century world. And I see that and go, what would happen if someone like a Smith and Weston took all of the energy that they have, mm. took all their resources all their finances, all the equipment, all the manufacturing, it began to make things that actually give life instead of, instead of taking it away. That's the narrative that I see time and time again of Israel starting out as slaves, becoming the, the game, the, the main key players of the whole game of the old Testament. Yeah. And then going back into slavery and then becoming another military empire, going back to slavery do you think that is how most people interpret the Old Testament? Unfortunately not, because our origin story as a nation does not look like Israel's origin story. Right. It yeah. looks way more like Babylon's. Right, right. Because when you have words like bombs bursting in air, rockets, red glare. It's a great in point. Your, I've never thought about that. In your national anthem. Yeah, yeah. That gives you. It's integrated that belief system is given mm -hmm. to you. It is literally the flag in one hand, a gun in the other, and it's wildly accepted. Yep. And it becomes even a bigger problem when it's the Bible in one hand and the gun in the other. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that what you're saying is so beautiful. The story of the Israelites, um, really the story of of slaves that were coming out telling the story and saying this is not who we are we are our own people in our own culture and what i think has happened is that story is a more accurate interpretation and it's there but the surface level literature those stories were written by humans who said i I'm going to tell a story of a god that is just the most kick-ass god you've ever heard and put this violent spin on this story as a way to really set Yahweh up as better than any other God. And we as modern readers and even readers after the Bible canonization, you know, or early readers did not read the story of the Israelites. They read a literal interpretation. They, they read that violence as a literal interpretation and a justification to fight people yeah. and be violent towards people instead of reading the violence in the Bible as the author's tools to tell a story about their God. And yes. that quote I was going to say by John Collins, I think it's a great thing that kind of sums up what we're talking about. Um, John Collins, I'll link it in show notes or wherever all of this is going to live, but he says, most scholars, we should hope, have learned by now that the denunciation of the Canaanites cannot be taken at face value and that these texts may tell us more about the purpose of their human authors than about the purpose of God. I mean, the authors of these books God, had an agenda. So 
the, the authors had an agenda to tell everyone how great their God was. And so yeah. they put God into these stories about that. And they added a lot of violence and a lot of mission impossible, James Bond like mm. themes to tell this story. And then later readers were like, no, that for sure happened. And also we're allowed to do that now. <laughs> and yeah. it's, but what you're saying is true and accurate, and I don't think people people have not taken the time to really find that true meaning in that story. Um, so yeah, it just it, it got me thinking. But I hope that I, as as people are listening, I want to say this: that when I say things like the story of the Israelites is highly contradictory, it's the people that are loved by God and that they're also told to pillage a village. Remember that that I'm also saying that the authors had an agenda. And right. that, when I say agenda, I don't mean something bad, like an evil agenda, but they had a purpose in yeah. telling these stories. They wanted to show how great their God was. And that doesn't mean that these stories don't have value. It simply right. means we have to take the time to interpret them with the level of intention and attention they deserve. Exactly. Like what you said, the fact that you don't interpret it literally and still have an, an amen, a tremendous amount of value in these right. stories says that it can be done. Yeah, I mean, these are the same storytellers that tell us about a guy named Jonah getting swallowed up by right. a big fish. Like, do we really want to believe that David went and cut all those foreskins? I'm going to really want to believe that actually didn't happen, right? Fingers crossed. Right? And yeah. we, we slightly touched on this last time, but in the first century, for a first century Hebrew teacher or rabbi or scholar writing these things, there was no reason for them to document history at this right. point. It was not a concern. And so they are telling stories not to get facts across, but to get to the yep. thing humming underneath everything that is yes. happening. Grand themes. Exactly. I talk, If you're listening to this, you're like, Savannah, if I hear you talk about this one more time, but I love- It's so important. To, it's so important that- in historical documents, the author's goals were not to document history in the same way that we do. Because remember, things were passed down oratorily. So they had to be easy to memorize. They had to be yeah. easy to remember. And so they packaged things into these really crazy, eventful, sometimes violent, ostentatious stories so that you can remember them. And within them is a rhythm of truth that we often as modern readers are not used to discovering. We're like, no, this is fact for fact. Yeah. Like the, 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 this happened and the, this happened three days later. And it's just, it's not, they were not as obsessed with numbers as we are. And we yeah. can't retroactively read that in. Um, okay. This is great. You're doing a great job, by the way. And this is, I know, <laughs> deep for all of our people, but I'm trying to so decide good. if like, we need to take like big, heavy breaths and like I can go make yes. some coffee. <laughs> so this next piece is going to lead us into Christian nationalism. So that's why I took a big sigh. <laughs> um, yeah. Here's the thing. I study Christian nationalism. I've had, I was about to say, I've had the pleasure. I have gone to a few uh, Christian nationalist and extremist events here in Oregon with another organization that I work with. I'll leave all of that private, but um, because my job is to study and observe and get feedback and try and understand where this mindset still exists yeah. today, why it does and what are the, anyways. So I'm very, I'm very in the the world of Christian nationalism, which is a terrible soundbite that we should not use. <laughs> Just put that in your bio and Instagram. I am very involved in the world of Christian nationalism, um, simply because I do it for research and I try and have conversations with people that identify as Christian nationalists. You're a spy. I'm a spy. No, I they and I let them know up front. Hey, I don't identify with your beliefs, but I'm very interested in understanding why you believe what you do. That's an interesting to me, and I want to know so that I can have better conversations. Um, everyone knows that's kind of like my favorite thing to do. So <laughs> I want to take us back 
to um, <laughs> the beginning of man. <laughs> the beginning of humanity. Okay, whoa. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. So we're going to, we're, we're going back to the Roman empire, which depending on, I don't know what year th- that could be spanning a lot of years, but I think probably 1200 something is probably where we probably sit with like the rise of the Roman empire. Fact checkers, check me on that. If you're listening, you can call me out. The Roman empire is very unique because, which is exactly what the Roman empire would want you to say about them. Um, for a lot of different reasons that I won't get into, but as the Roman empire was one of the largest empires, um, size wise, but also at the pace at which they grew for a lot of different reasons. Some of it being eventually down the line, the expansions of railroads within, uh, Europe, within Europe, uh, their, um, focus on expansion of land, whereas other empires were focused on in depth, um, creating a deeper culture within their own empire, whereas Roman Empire was really focused on expanding instead of creating in- an in-depth culture. Lots of different reasons that I won't list. Those are a few. It expanded. So then all of a sudden, Europe, that what we think of as white Western world, is this powerhouse, you know, and eventually I think it's Caesar that makes Christianity like the original, the the official religion of the Roman Empire, right? So then you've got this huge empire that's also Christian that is growing at a rapid rate and expanding and taking land. That empire has has a Bible, say this is the Bible, that they are interpreting literally when it comes to violence. So you've got this, this huge white empire entity that is now Christian and now has a perfect book that justifies violence. Yeah. And they then go and take over everything. Yeah. We, we already know that Central America, eventually Northern America, parts of the Middle East, parts of Africa, right? Everywhere. They go everywhere and they take everything and they use the Bible as justification for that and say, no, we are totally fine pillaging these lands, killing these people and taking their lands because we are just like Israel. Israel did the same thing. And they interpret the violence in that in the Bible as a literal justification to oppress and take over and conquer other people in other mm-hmm. countries. That theme never goes away. And Europe and eventually Eurocentrism Eurocentrism grows and expands. There are stories of when Europe, when European colonizers go to Africa, these are Christian European colonizers go to Africa. They are so offended that the women don't wear shirts and that their breasts are out that they make the women cover themselves Mm -hmm. there. Now there are Christians in Africa, mind you, this is not They're also Christians that just the women don't wear tops there, but they are Christians in Europe, they wear tops because it's cold there and people wear tops in Europe because it's cold. It's just colder, the climate, right? It's so hot in Africa that the women don't wear tops, both Christian, but both Christians exist in both places. But when Europe goes to Africa, they say, no, you need to be modest and put on a top. And suddenly the European Christianity takes over, indoctrinates and conquers African Christianity. And then they go to Latin America and there's all of these Latin Americans that are painting and depicting Jesus within their culture and Jesuits and Catholics go to Central America and say, no, you need to be painting Jesus white with blue eyes. Mm -hmm. And so Latin American depiction of Jesus is now conquered by white depictions of Jesus. And this Eurocentric Christianity of indoctrinating and taking over 
and rewriting their own, rewriting these cultural versions of Christianity with a Eurocentric version becomes the theme worldwide. And eventually we see it in America when in North America, I should say, when people arrive and we see, um, the uh, establishment of slavery and the Bible is used to justify slavery and taking over the land of Native Americans. And Native Americans are told they have to convert to Christianity in order to receive humanitarian aid. And people, uh, slaves are told that if they want food and shelter, that they have to convert to Christianity to receive that aid. This is not a joke. I'll leave all of this in the show notes, but it's this continual, I don't know if the camera's on me, but it's culture of Christianity or not. These people with their own culture and voice are suddenly taken over by Eurocentric Christianity. Mm-hmm. And they just so happen to have a perfect book that justifies that behavior. And this yeah. goes on. Well, it's still going on, but I'm going to pause there for a second because I think as everyone's listening. That's a lot to take in, yeah. but I think a lot of us already know a lot of that. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to put it into perspective and really all in one piece. But the concept of white evangelical Christianity taking over oppressing and silencing other cultures and religions is a habit that is not new and has in fact existed since Christianity's existence. And we're still seeing the fallout of that today. And violence is a part of that fallout. Yeah. Thoughts. I mean, I don't even, Oh man, there's so many ways that we could go through this. I think one thing that kept coming to mind is you kept uh, bringing up the iteration of a, or the example of a perfect book. And even when the book wasn't perfect for some slaves, they would mm-hmm. take out Rip portions out. of, um, uh, maybe in our show notes, we can put something in about the slave Bible is yep. what it's called. And any sort of message of a refugee finally having a sense of home in a land that isn't theirs taken out of the scripture. They literally took out like masters would take out the stories of yeah. the Israelites, yeah. like the book of Exodus, not in a slave's Bible. Because that's what you do when you need to remove hope or Mm -hmm. any sense of seeing yourself um, in someone else who eventually received hope. That's a form of violence in my eyes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a lot. And you're probably thinking, how does that link to gun violence? And I would say, I'm so glad you asked. Because gun violence now is not new. Violence with guns has been used since we've had guns because the concept of using tools to hurt and oppress minority group, white people using tools to, to hurt and oppress minority groups has been going on forever. The tools have just changed. Yeah. Right. It was a great way of putting it. Right. Yeah. It was, it was anything from whips and actual, uh, uh, sticks and, um, bats, things like that, right? Or in the Bible, right? There's stonings or in the Middle Ages, right? We don't want to talk about the torture and weapons used in the Middle Ages, but don't Google it. But, you know, now we have guns. It's just reiteration of the same shit. And I don't know if we're allowed to swear on this. What, shit? (laughs) But We can say shit. But it is. It truly is. And when I talk about Christian nationalism, which is where I want to sit for a little bit. This is where it leads us to the topic of white supremacy Mm -hmm. because white supremacy, we often hear and we think KKK or 
right? We think of the Proud Boys, and it's more than that. White supremacy is rooted in Christian values. And there's a lot we could say about it, but I think the important things to note, and I've written some things down here because I think it's important to say certain things as we talk about this, but white supremacy forced uh, Central Americans to convert to Catholicism in order to receive, you know, shelter, right? We talked about that. White supremacy forced Native Americans to convert to Protestantism to receive that humanitarian aid, right? White supremacy is not just the Proud Boys or the KKK. White supremacy is any action that supports the notion that white culture is the superior, superior culture. And those that do not adhere to it are to be punished. That's what white supremacy is. And we saw it with the expansion of Eurocentricism. We saw it with European colonizers establishing themselves as the normal, forcing Africans to cover themselves, right? Forcing people to paint Jesus in a certain right, way. Right. That is that is white supremacy. And we see that today. We see the concept of white culture dominating other cultures and using violence a lot of times to get that point across. Mm-hmm. And... The term white supremacy, a lot of times people say like, oh, I don't know. I'm not a white supremacist. We as white people inherently participate in white supremacy by living in a world that supports the notion that white culture is the superior culture. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts. No, on that, I mean, but, it is the subtext under right. everything. And you will as especially as to white people, if we are not asking ourselves that question about everything that we participate in, then we'll probably miss it because we were handed that system since the day that we arrived and our parents were also handed that. Yes. Um, And so white people specifically, I'm talking to you pastors and people who believe in the way of Jesus who are white. There are things we are all doing that is adversely keeping people away from knowing the true message of Jesus because our whiteness is in the way. And it's usually all because we are just not asking ourselves, am I privileged in this moment? Right. Yeah. It's to loop all of this together because I feel like what I've done is I've mentioned, uh, well, like white supremacy, gun violence, biblical violence. Like how does this all tie together? The Bible uses violence as a tool oftentimes to tell a story or make a point. Europeans interpreted that as literal, they interpreted it literally, and then used the Bible as justification to be violent towards other minority groups and take over their land. In America specifically, when colonizers arrived, they used violence to take over the lives in the land of Native Americans and the lives in the land of African Americans under the justification of the, the Bible. That did not just stop and go away. History doesn't work like that. We are now seeing the domino effects of that, yeah. right? We have seen racism exist in this country, and it, it it will exist for, I don't even want to say how long, but it's it's the domino effect. It's not right. going to go away overnight. And this reality that, you know, people say like, oh, racism doesn't exist anymore, or that's not an issue anymore. It very much is, because history is not a light switch where once we <laughs> stopped slavery, we were like, and now no more racism it just yeah. changed Doesn't it just changed like forms yeah. it's, and so guns is the same way european colonizers arrived in america and used violence to take over the land and lives of others because they were justified by their literal interpretation of the bible and white christians continue to think like that 
because mm-hmm. that is our generational education of the Bible. Yeah. What, what I hear you saying is violence is still raging in our day and age. Mm-hmm. Um, and I might be pulling at this a little bit, but I think you would agree. Um, it's just way easier for us to be violent because not only do some belief systems, but even certain laws and legislations allow it because violence can come through a gun, but it can also come through capitalism. Yes. Violence can come through physical abuse, but violence can also come from not even giving someone a chance in the interview. Yes. That's That's what, that's that's kind of what I hear Mm -hmm. you, what what you're saying. It is when you interpret the Bible, when you interpret the Bible, literally, you give yourself an excuse to be xenophobic and violent towards minority groups because that is what the Bible does if you interpret it literally, a.k.a. incorrectly. Yeah. If you interpret it correctly, you can see a story of freedom and social justice and love for your neighbor. But that takes work and dedication and love for your neighbor. Mm. And the lazy way to interpret the Bible is to see it as an excuse and a justification to oppress others because that is how the European... Christianity has benefited is by interpreting the Bible literally. Yeah. <laughs> European white evangelicals very much benefit from taking the Bible literally because it's the perfect excuse to otherize people. Yeah. It's the perfect excuse to say, I knew I was the one culture in charge and now every other culture shall be below me. That's what it says. If you take yeah. it in, if you take it literally and which honestly just sounds so boring, doesn't it? Like we, yes. let's be honest. Yes. What, what do we have? Wonder Bread and John Mayer. Yes. That's what we have. Yeah. Imagine <laughs> if the whole world looked like us. Oh my God. Yikes. John Mayer. Wonder Bread <laughs> Wonder and John Bread. Mayer. I don't know why those are the two things I'm with. John well, Mayer. we know why. Like, it? yeah, it's, it's. Did you get that at the concert? I did. Nice. I did. That's why I wore it. But, um, and this is a really hard topic to talk about because I'm going to be honest. I'm not an expert in gun violence in America. Same. Yeah. But I, I do love to study and discuss the topic of violence in the Bible. And I think, and I, I think it would be hard-pressed to find anyone listening that would disagree with this, but I could be wrong. I think that v- violence in the Bible has had a direct influence on American Christianity today. Oh, and how American Christians, or I should say American evangelicals, see the Bible as the perfect justification to be violent towards others because it's exactly what the Israelites did. And it's exactly how European Christianity, Roman Empire, old world, Western world Europe has been interpreting the Bible forever. Mm. And we don't know any different. And that sounds like an excuse. What I'm saying is this has been a systematic interpretation of the of the Bible for centuries and it's got to change. I, I think I wrote it down here. Yeah. The Bible was used to support. Yeah. Xenophobia for, uh, linked with, I have so many notes here. I don't know if you guys can see, (laughs) I'm trying to decide what to include and what not, but I think if the Christian community wants to stand a chance at remaining relevant and positively influential in the world, it's going to take, have to take a, hard and fast look at its interpretation of the Bible and be more open to an interpretation that lifts up and supports minorities and not view the Bible as a justification to be violent towards and otherize them. Mm-hmm. That's my two cents on that. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> I I actually don't know if I have anything else to add to that because you yeah. just wrapped that up so well. There's also two players in this, right? Yeah. There's the church, um, but there's also the state, mm-hmm. right? Which I I think we're going to get to that in a right. little bit. Um, also, the concept of separation of church and state is an absolute Oh, that's myth. a whole... Wait till we do one on faith and politics. That's going to be a rager. You want to talk about... So never mind, pop I was going to swear right again, there. but I won't. I'll, minim, I'll minimize my swearing. What was the swear word you used? Shit. Oh, shit. Shit. Yeah. Is that like your go-to? No. What's like your go-to? You know the one. Oh, uh, the F word? Yeah, usually. Oh, whoa. Yeah. That's... That's pretty fucking crazy. <laughs> like, we'll, use, we'll bleep it. I use that word. Oh God, I don't even know. Probably like fifty times a day. Whoa, you know what I, I've maybe I, not. That's too many. No. I, I know we're kind of going. Like 10. I am starting to try to use cuss words in a more like elegant way, to Love where it. it's not like common language, but like when you say the word, yeah, it just has like like. You it grab their you. attention like, uh-huh. oh, he said it's the consonants. That. It's the double consonants. I can't wait yeah. for every one of my evangelical pastor friends, which I have none of anymore. <laughs> Y'all left me. A while I have ago. a few. So maybe I'll Nice. There you yeah. go. It's mainly gonna be I like, try and keep that you line know, of someone's grandma is gonna like scrub to like twenty three minutes 100%. into this and be like, Who are these? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my god. Uh, um okay, really quickly. Can yeah. I say really quickly? I want to, we've talked about violence in the Bible and how it's influenced how we view violence today in America, right? I really wanted to streamline it and really make sure that it was clear about America. I'm not going to repeat myself again. Now let's talk about gun violence specifically, because like I said, violence towards minority groups is nothing new. We've seen it throughout history. It's not right, but it makes sense that we still see it today just with a different tool. Yeah. Guns. Yeah. Um, Fun fact. Did you know, this is not a fun fact. I should not have pitched You're it good. like that the police the uh this is not in my notes i'm riffing here but um the origin of the police there were two different ones in the north and the south and in the south the police force was originally named something very offensive that i won't say now but i it was a bunch of white people who were on watch to look for slaves that were trying to escape that and then that became known as the police force that's the origin of the police force. Mm. So I just want to, if you're listening and you're like, no, but I'm a police officer. I'm not saying you're Reclaim doing it. that. Redeem it. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm not saying that that's you or you desire it. I just want you, if you are a police officer or you, you know, are know someone that's a police officer or you're supporting the police force, whatever, just to take note of that, that it originated not that long ago. To catch mm. slaves. Okay, wait. This is really... Okay, I have a couple of thoughts here. Yeah. Did not know that. Not surprised. Yeah. But you said something that I think permeates this entire episode, which is um, if you are a police officer, the wor- this for me goes into Elijah saying swords into plowshares. Yeah. If you are a police officer and you learn about the history of where your life's work comes from... The worst thing you could do then is leave it, in my opinion. Great point. Same with your faith system. Yep. Same with um, because we have a lot of capitalistic war 
economical, uh, economically built systems in America, the worst thing we could do is move from here to go somewhere else because our country's built on this. Stay and, and change st- it. Stay, rebuild, yep. dare I say, resurrect it. I get, I totally I get had to. No, I've, I, I had to. you brought it full circle. Yeah. If, if you're a police officer or you know someone who is and you care about that person or you care about your job as you should, it's your livelihood. And I tell you that the origin of the police force, it was to uh, watch, abuse, and oppress black people. Your reaction should not be, that's not true. That, no, it should be, holy shit. I, I am so glad you told me that. And now I can change. Yeah. I can be a part of the change. I can make this place better. Yeah. That's what it should be. And a lot of times we put our defenses up and we say, no, I don't know. That can't be it. And we immediately want to reject. That's fact. You can Google it. That's, history isn't changing just because it makes you uncomfortable. Mm. So acknowledge it and try and make it better yeah. so that our kids, when they look back and they knew you, they could say, well, so-and-so was a great police officer. They were a great representation of what the police force should be. So I love that. That's soapbox. So let's talk about, let's talk about gun violence because the one thing that I want to discuss is the concept of communal sin. And you might be able to speak on this a little bit more that Christians from my understanding and from being a Christian is that sin really lives in a couple of places. There's your personal, your heart sin or evil, right? Like humanity, human is evil. The devil is evil. And also there's evil in the world. Those are kind of the three places, right? Yeah. So, most countries that have more of a community-centric identity, think Guatemala, a lot of countries in Central America, um, a lot of countries in the Middle East are communal countries. They live in communities. Their identity is a community. If you say, who are you? They're likely to say, I'm the mother of so-and-so. I'm the daughter of so-and-so. Whereas in individualistic countries like America, if you say who I am, I say, oh, well, my title is this. I make this much money, mm-hmm. right? It's very individualistic. In an individualistic country like America, we struggle with the concept of communal evil and communal sin or, oh, as a people, as a country, we have messed up. Mm. We really struggle with that because we're very individualistic. But there is a contradiction when it comes to the evangelical church's view of gun violence versus literally anything else. And I brought this up because Esau McCulley wrote a really great article about this, and I'm going to link it. Um, and I think I put the uh, yeah, it's from, by the New York Times, and I'll link it in the in the show notes or wherever. But he brings up this idea um, that <laughs> the evangelical church evangelicals in America view issues like abortion or uh, what's taught in schools, like mm. critical race theory or whether the Ten Commandments should be placed on a school. I think it was Texas that was just trying to pass a bill right. like that. Yeah. The, if, the American evangelical community loves to get involved and change legislation. They love to change legislation. Say, it's a, this is a communal thing. We need to change this. And so we saw it go to the Supreme Court, and abortion was banned through the Supreme Court, straight to the legislation. And now they're getting involved with legislation to say that the Bible should be taught in schools, or that I think it was Texas that was trying to pass a law that said you needed to display the Ten Commandments. Yeah. It's legislation, legislation. And then as soon as you get to gun violence, they say, oh, we don't need to get involved with legislation. We just need to change the hearts of the gun, the people that shoot up places. Mm, It's mm, a heart issue. mm. 
all of a sudden it's this total shift from we as a community need to change this. We need to protect our schools and we need to protect the unborn. And we, it's we, we, we. And then all of a sudden when it comes to gun violence, it's, well, they need to change their hearts. I find that fascinating. I feel like, oh, and also disclaimer too, I, I'm not an evangelical. I'm just going to like throw that out there. Sure. Like, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, just yeah, so yeah. everyone, I do not like, I That's love why that I like world. to specify, this is typically a, an evangelical, an American evangelical take. But I did spend 30 years of my life in that world, right? So you have some I've got a little bit knowledge. of, yeah. yeah. I feel like when you scream, don't take our guns away, to me, that might be a physical thing there. It is on the same playing field as them saying, don't send me to hell when I die. Let me go to heaven. That's why I believe in this very literal thing. Mm. Because for me, at least my 30-year experience in that world, that that small semi-antiquated box of belief systems, the major theme is security and safety that's kind of built out of fear. Yep. And so your theological belief is, I don't, and we hit this so much last week, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to heaven primarily because that's where God is, if that's your belief system or whatever. Um, I just don't want to burn in a lake of fire. And I would argue it's the same thing with someone's guns. Ooh, okay, keep talking about that. Let me see if I follow. Yeah, I, if you take away the thing that brings your family, you personally, your actual living human life, safety and security, the thing that's strapped around your waist that you can use on any person of any day, is that not the same thing? This brings I you safety see. and security, trust. Yes. It's another system that's at play to I make you saying. feel safe and okay. And I would say, um, and there is another great podcast out there that had this conversation that, that held space for this conversation so, so well. It was the Holy Post. And I think they had Joe Saxton on for it too, who I adore. And um, they quoted a research project that was recently out that said out of 600 and I'm going to get the numbers wrong. It was 617 or 618. It's somewhere in there. Six. 617, 617 homes that had guns, that used them, that fired guns, only 10 were to protect the home. Every mm. other one resulted in either a family member of the home being yeah. shot, a friend, an unintentional accident. Only 10 out of the 600 and something, only 10 uses of the gun resulted in protecting the home from an outsider intruder. Yeah. So- the gun in your home actually raises the chances that someone you love will be killed. Right. Not to mention the ones that have, if you have an AR-15 in your in your house, um, I mean, do we even need to say that the way that the Constitution was written, they're not thinking about semi-automatic assault weapons. They're right. thinking about things that actually take quite significant time to reload. Yes. They're not thinking about mass shootings. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't know if uh, this is probably going to, the Swifties will love this one. I, I think everyone else is going to get on me for for this one. Um, you want to be, you want to be a big boy and have assault weapons in your house. In my opinion, that's the most immature thing you could possibly do. That actually shows you how scared you are mm. to lose your life. I am. Oh, I'm just going to leave yep. it at that. I don't even know if I'm going to let that actually say in the podcast. I see what you're saying. Yeah, because having guns in America 
isn't, is what I think. Having guns in America isn't about protecting your home. Isn't about protecting anyone. Having guns is something many people feel they need to do and have a right to because it's what's been done in this country. It is how we define the powerful versus those that lack power. Mm. Those that have weapons are powerful. That has been the established neutral in America for so long that to have a gun means that you have power. I find the notion of protect the second amendment. Sure. But amendments still have guidelines. We, Mm. we have freedom of speech, but you can't go on the news and say terrible things, right? You can't say certain words on the news or on certain, uh, in the newspaper, if the New York times came out with an article that was just completely fake or actually false information, right? Yeah. Uh, they'd get busted for it. Right. Or you, someone might sue if you, that's why we have, uh, the, you can sue someone for defamation of character yeah. because you said something that went against the guidelines. It was like, well, freedom of speech. Yes. But with boundaries. Yeah. Why can't we have that with the second amendment? Yeah. Yeah. You can have, you can, sure. You can have this or this boundaries or that's, I don't mean to get mm-hmm. into the whole, I don't want to get into the politics no, of it, I, yeah. but it is something about weapons. It is something about weapons that Americans equate with power that we don't equate with anything else. Freedom yeah. of speech for us does not give us the same sense of power yeah. as weapons do because mm-hmm. for so long weapons have meant I am better than you, and I am justified to use this weapon on anyone that doesn't identify with who I am yeah. or I don't like. And yeah. it's been a habit. Um, no, I, I love that. I think we said last week, like, uh, Jesus would be mortified that we took his words and turned it into a religion, right? Because yeah. of the literalness of all of it. I think I I've often wonder if the writers of the Constitution would also be mortified that we haven't amended some of that. I think we Mm. now have the oldest Constitution of any first world country in the world. Like we we love to say that we are a modern, progressive, forward-thinking country, and we're not. We keep looking back at something that was written now hundreds of years ago to say, but this is still literal today. This this second Constitution, this the second thing here, it's still literal. And today. also the second amendment, just um, some people just don't know this. It wasn't talking about individuals having guns. It was talking. Oh, go people, on this. This one. Is, people, yeah. people didn't have guns, but it wasn't a thing that you had a gun in your house back then. What it was talking about was the people had a right to rebel. If something felt wrong, right. they had a right, right to um, defend themselves as a people against overpowering government. Right. That's what it was for. We've now interpreted it as like, I want a gun in my house. Sure, you can interpret it that way, but that's not the intention. That wasn't the original. People didn't just go have guns under their bed or in their safes in the 1700s. That just wasn't a thing that culturally, economically, it was not feasible for people to have that. Um, But now now we've retroactively, now that we have the ability to mass produce guns, we've gone in and reinterpreted it as everyone has a right to guns. But what it is is everyone has the right to bear arms, meaning everyone has the right to defend themselves against an overpowering government. That's the origin. (laughs) That's what it is. It's like that Facebook commercial with like the the grandmas. That's not how any of this works. That's, That's not how this works. How, and when I when I heard because I didn't know that I didn't I didn't know that admittedly until last year when someone told me that and I went and looked it up and I was like by golly that 
they're right. That's yeah. exactly what it was supposed to be. And we've misinterpreted it. So it just goes to show you the power of if something is misinterpreted, but it's repeated enough, it becomes the correct interpretation. Absolutely. And that's the most dangerous thing. Mm. That's the most dangerous thing to misinterpret something and then have it be misinterpreted and supported enough that it becomes not only the correct interpre- interpretation, but the only interpretation. Yeah. That's, that's it on my I end. love that. And the, this is all brilliant and so well articulated. So really good on you for putting all this Thank together. You. I'll put I, away my 18 pages of notes. I Emily's I, waving at us because we've been talking forever. On that um, note, I think I have a way to like wrap this up and I want to just give a, a uh, bit of a disclaimer with this one, mainly because I have done very little research and I that's intentional, but I do want to talk about one of the very last um, school shootings that happened where uh, the transgender person went into the Christian school. And I just want to give my very first thoughts. And I think, uh, again, I do not know this is all assumption. Um, and so I don't want you to take anything that I'm saying as fact. I'm just going to lay out a few areas of violence of where both Every system has failed us. Um, On one side, it's really hard for me to see that a transgender person went to a Christian place because most of the time, someone who is going to be involved in a mass shooting has some sort of relationship to that place. She went there. She went there. Yeah. So I the the whole phrase of like going postal that came from a mass shooting of someone who worked in a post office. That's where we get the phrase postal, right? Um, all the way down to um, literally any major mass shooting that we, that we've seen, right? Outside of the manifestos of uh, people, well, even like the manifestos of the person that went to the predominant like black community, right? I believe it was in Georgia, um, to a predominantly like black grocery store because of a particular like racist ideology. Mm -hmm. So there's some connection there. And when I heard of a transgender, I believe they identified as a woman. So forgive me if I'm wrong, but a transgender woman who went to a school to enact violence. My first thought as a follower of Jesus, who has been part of institutions, and I don't know anything about that institution, but my first thought was, I wonder how many years of violence was enacted on her. Right. Because so many people have told her time and time again, you can't be this thing. Mm -hmm. And the only way of any system that gave her a way out was to enact violence on them, to end the lives of the people who told her that she could not live Mm -hmm. her life. Yeah. So in so many ways, the church failed her. Yeah. And what makes it even harder to identify with is then the state did by giving her access to all the tools to enact that violence on those people. Right. And so when I see both sides of that, the the church side of it and then the state side, there are many things on both sides that we must take action on rebuilding, reclaiming, Again, I'll say it again. There are systems that need to die so we can resurrect new systems that actually give people access to be them full selves and zero access to take someone else's life. This even goes into, for me at least, uh, conversations around death penalty. Yeah. Um, 
as a follower of Jesus, we must be vehement believers in that no one is too far gone. No one is too far gone for an understanding a life of joy. Yeah. That does not mean um, discipline and action and sometimes restraint. That's not where we're taking this. But no one is too far gone from knowing true love, true equity and belonging, mm -hmm. and even for in, in themselves, uh, true peace. There are things in the system that have to change. There are things in our churches that must change. But this is not only a violence issue. This is a mental health issue. Yeah. This is a identity issue. If we actively created spaces where everyone knew they had to see at the table, you want to end gun violence? Maybe let's start there. Yeah. I think it's, you perfectly summed up what that, that article that I was referencing really spoke on is, Sure, there's that heart issue. Sure, that person was struggling and the church did not serve her, did not make her feel loved. The school that she went to, it's like no wonder she went back to it and made sense that was her connection. Not only did she have that heart issue, we as a system have a communal nationwide issue yeah. of having extremely easy access to guns and it the two together are catastrophic and the quote that i want to read i wasn't going to read it but it really sums up what you said this is from esau mccauley's article in the new york times i do not need the government to change salvador Ramo ramos's heart he's the one that did the shooting in uvalde okay yeah i do not need the government to change salvador ramos's heart I want it to make sure that others like him don't have access to an AR-style assault rifle and 375 rounds of ammunition. Mm. Mm. We can say that Salvador engaged in real acts of evil while also acknowledging that our society has an unhealthy obsession with the guns that made his evil actions possible. Both can be true, yeah. which I think is exactly what you're saying. Mm -hmm. You ha can have a heart issue and an evil, or you might call it evil, or from a religious perspective, sin. I call it the natural human tendency that sometimes is exacerbated by mental health issues. This desire for violence that is within all of us to varying degrees. When we engage in that, it is sin, or it is evil, or it is harmful. That is wrong. Yeah. And also, the fact that we someone who is struggling with that can also have access to an AR weapon is also not good. Yeah. What if we took away that access? What if instead of saying they have a heart issue, they need to figure it out. Yeah. We're not, we're still going to have, we're going to leave the guns on the table. Mm -hmm. It's basically the equivalent of having a table of cocaine in front of a drug addict and yeah. a cocaine addict specifically and saying, you just need to not be an addict. Oh, the cocaine on the table? No, that's not the problem. It's a heart issue for you. Yeah. So you need to stop being an addict. We don't need to take away the cocaine. You need to stop being an addict. Mm. Well, what if we took the cocaine off the table and also helped you with your heart that's transformation? It. That's it. The refusal to take the weapons off the table while also calling on people struggling with mental health crises to take care of their own shit 
while also giving them complete access to these violent weapons isn't doing us any good and it's not working. And I think we need to stop pretending that it's working and instead take the guns off the table and also help with that mental health crisis. To me, that's, it sounds like we both are kind of saying that same thing of there are two sides to this. There's the mental health side and there's the communal responsibility side Absolutely, that the evangelical community refuses to acknowledge or take responsibility for, even though ironically the violence and obsession with guns is rooted in evangelical Christian identity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The end. The end. Hey, we did it. Good job. That was a rough one. That was, that was a rough hard. One, uh, needed and important. Yeah. And what we're going to typically do is we're going to bounce from a theology conversation to then a more social justice conversation. So the next episode we do episode three. Oh, oh, we have something really cool. We want to tell oh, people about episode three. I forgot wait. about that. What? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But then they're like, Okay, that second part. Okay. Do you, do you yeah, yeah, wanna, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to say it, and I hope this is what you're saying. I For hope our so too. third episode, we're going to invite. Go to a people. Taylor Swift he- concert. <laughs> not saying the same thing okay for our third episode if someone listen oh sorry i'm gonna cut you off because this is important for everyone that got mad at me last week if someone wants to hmm, buy me a taylor swift ticket oh my god i will go if you want to accompany me i will go with you um you would pay them back for the ticket i will literally like have the sign that says change my mind oh my god You'll have a little. Lo- yes, uh, I'm not going to buy the ticket. Oh, okay. like cool, literally cool. my just so we're clear, you're look, Just so we're clear, you're looking for free Taylor Swift tickets. That, oh my god. Okay, so anyway, so just wanted to sum that up. That Josh, Anyways, is, lo- Josh, is, Josh is looking is on the lookout for a free Taylor Swift ticket. So help him, cult members. I mean, um, I do run non-profits. Non-profit. So. <laughs> There's there not is, a lot. Of- there is nay a profit in sight. <laughs> Um, so, okay. The big thing that we were going to say is our next episode, episode three, we actually want to invite some of you here. We took a poll. There are a lot of you very interested in doing a live show, which I think we are ideally, we really want to do a big live show maybe in the summer and then eventually at Christmas. Yeah. Some big, fun, like really formal live shows. Maybe like rent out of space. I don't know. Get wild. But we'd love to invite a few of you here, maybe like 10 people. We probably should cap it, um, for our next show information on how to secure your spot on that will be on our Instagram. So check in, follow us at the Holy Hill pod and there'll be more information on there. And then also starts with a D you want to don't get weird with it. (laughs) Do you want to, do you want to launch into that? Yeah, absolutely. We now have an official discord. We actually don't, we just made this decision like right before five minutes before we started this. Um, but by the time this episode is out, it'll be live. We'll have it. Yeah. We'll have it out. And, uh, this actually came from us being fully aware of how many people are interacting with this podcast Yep. and we, we get it. Like we want to have those conversations with you as well. And so we're going to open that discord. It's going to be fun. Again, I'm almost 35, so I don't understand TikTok, which also means I don't understand Discord's fun. I've engaged on it a couple of times. I really like it. It's a great place to have conversations in the moment. Um, yeah. I'm sure there'll be ground rules, uh, you know, dialogue over debate, listen over lecture, all of my normal mottos that you hear tithe, me say. Tithe, all that, yeah. Tithe at least 30%. Um, <laughs> Whoa, okay. Tithe 30% and Yikes. your life will get 30% better. Oh, we should do one on the prosperity gospel. Anyways, okay, I digress. Um, <laughs> that's the end of our show, ladies and gentlemen. We love you all. We love you all. Have a great day. Bye. Peace.